0: Hello everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast where writers sit around drinking tasty beverages and talk about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. There will be rants and raves and opinions that do not agree but are lovingly delivered. We will not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Today, Chaz is sick and John is working hard on an election campaign for a friend, so it's just you and me, Jeannie Warner, and Jonathan R. Rose. This is episode 162. Welcome, Jonathan.
1: Thank you very much. I'm really happy to be here. Looking forward to a nice chat.
0: I'm delighted to that you reached out to us. I heard you talking on another podcast. And there's just a topic I wanted to jump right into because with the modern economy and people's things, you talked about how you up and moved to Mexico because Mm -hmm. you wanted to be a writer and it was cheaper.
1: Yeah. Well, let's get into it. Yep.
0: I, I was going to say rents in Toronto are horrible, and I totally get that. Yep. I live in, in the San Francisco Bay Area, and we don't even Ooh. want to talk about how expensive it is here. So <laughs> you just You drove to Mexico City and set up a place. Tell us mm-hmm. about it.
1: Well, uh, funny enough, rents, they were high then, but they were nothing like they are now. <laughs> uh, now it's just obscene. And again, yeah, when you say you're from San Francisco, oh, man, I yeah, you you can feel the pain and I can feel yours. And uh, with that, I think I'm probably going to end up doing it again. Maybe not Mexico, but probably somewhere else um I, hear I was yeah.
0: gonna say i hear you i lived in guelph ontario for a year and it, it still wasn't cheap there either
1: <laughs> oh no, and now nah, Guelph, the outskirts there it's just not tenable <laughs> not if you want to i always view it like it's tenable if you just want to dedicate your life to working to pay that rent and everything and that is a life i don't want to live and never did so
0: do you think that we could like see a movement of expatriate writers in other countries it could be a real thing
1: It's actually happening Um, through uh, um, work I do, aside from writing, (laughs) because just to slide in a little tip, I would love to tell any writer, if you're a writer and you want to write books, that's great, but it's a skill and it can be done for many different things. You can live off writing, if not necessarily book writing. Just a cool little thing I learned over the years.
0: Well, but, uh, I, I moved from operations into marketing. And so I totally get right. you. I basically write things for a living.
1: <laughs> exactly. Same. And so, um, when, uh, in the course of research with some work I do for immigration, um, it's actually legitimate. A lot of, um, even first time immigrants, they stay for a few years and they're like, I can't afford this. So they leave. Yeah. And a lot of, uh, particularly younger people, um, people in their twenties that, which was about the time I left for Mexico, Um, they're leaving because they're they just can't do it so there is a brain drain going on throughout canada and it's it is increasing it's getting quite substantial because the cost of living is just it's just too prohibitive well
0: should i ask how you ended up back in canada why did you leave central america
1: uh well I, I left because of the pandemic. That was right. I had no right. intention on leaving. I was gonna stay. I was liking my life there. Things are actually moving. There was gonna be a book tour for my Spanish book called Gato y Lobo. Um, my life was there, but the pandemic hit like, like it hit everybody. Yeah. And, um, so in March, 2020, it was really stressful. I was in Mexico city checking airlines every day, seeing flights get canceled, the whole world basically losing its mind. And, um, my mom, you know, she lives alone here in Canada and I, I couldn't leave my mom alone. So I came back and, um, just pretty much to make sure she was okay throughout the whole pandemic.
0: I think it's that's so... actually pretty
1: awesome of you. <laughs> Thanks. We
0: <laughs> gotta look after our moms. Of and dads, course. You know,
1: the Of course. And uh, it was it was a tough call though. It was one of those things where um I won't go totally dramatic and go Sophie's choice, but it was one of those kind of choices where no matter what I chose, I was gonna lose. It's true. So um, but I made the call. Um, I stick with it. Um, I was really glad to help my mom through it. And uh, now that the pandemic's leaving, I have a feeling I'm just going to repeat my own history and leave again. Because um, to go back to your initial question, when I left, um, I I was just starting. It was about 13 years ago, give or take. And I said, I want to write. I want to take this seriously. But it's hard to do with like a full-time job and paying rent. I'm like, no, I want to go for it. I'm young. I want to see. And uh, I knew people down in Mexico, and I just wanted to go. I was traveling a lot before that because I worked for an airline. And, uh, I wanted, I didn't want to glimpse countries anymore and cultures. I didn't want to dip my toes in. I wanted to immerse. I wanted to really learn and, um, live in it. So I packed up my old 92 Camry and I have no idea how it made it with close to 280,000 kilometers on it, but, uh, I drove down made it. And, uh, I didn't have a plan. Didn't think I would spend a decade. I just said, I'm just going to do this, see what happens. And yeah, 10 years there, two years in Argentina, and if not for the pandemic, who knows.
0: <laughs> so I almost want to ask given now I've read a couple one of your books. Oh, you. I want to discuss genre which you seem to sort of be flirting with dystopia touch of horror across all of your different books. How would you classify yourself or would you classify yourself? Painfully cynical.
1: No. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but, uh, so dystopian. Uh, <laughs> um I, I think a cynic is a person who is struck by the difference between how things are and how they ought to be.
1: I'd agree. Um, I I found it, I, I like to think more critical versus cynical, but I find cynical is one of those words that has really been molded by people where it has such a brazenly negative connotation that it's almost hard to dig it out of its grave, where it's just like, it doesn't necessarily mean you're negative or a downer, I think. It's more just, you just don't you refuse to see things through rose-colored glasses you know what i mean um, and- absolutely i mean I, we could
0: almost have a whole modern what's what's the word a horoscope where you know the right. curmudgeon the curmudgeon used to be a romantic but had to form right. some kind of shell to protect their gooey insides
1: right yeah like yeah and or the misanthrope was like somebody people would listen to a little but like like I do get it if you're just going to rant and rave and be redundant and boring with it and just say everything sucks. Well, that's one thing. But yeah. what I've always tried to do was explore it, but um I have uh, I was told this by somebody who really who really knew me and they they actually called me a very hopeful person in the things I've written. And I found that really interesting because uh I always wanted to entertain that notion that I think I would have truly been negative. where just like, oh, screw it. People suck. Life sucks, etc. But in the end, I, I write these books because I'm trying to explore that negativity rather than brush it off. I want to understand it. I want to expand on it. I want to speculate on it. And then maybe in that speculation, understanding, maybe there's some answers. Maybe there's some, not to say I have the answers, but I'm trying to find them. Like, Okay, maybe we're doing all of this stuff wrong. All right, well, what if we change this? Or what if we do this? So I figure, you know, go through the muck and maybe you'll find something there rather than just look at the muck and walk away from it. So I try to take it like that.
0: Do you consider writing uh, very story driven or very character driven? Or how do you, do you, where do you fit in all of that debate?
1: I think when I started, it was very story driven. It was a very, uh, uh, I would start with what if. I would start with a question. I would start with just kind of like, like, I daydream a lot. Uh, <laughs> it's something a, Occupational hazard, I imagine. Absolutely. Uh, I always remember a comedy routine from George Carlin, who, oh, you want to talk about somebody that inspired wordplay and storytelling?
0: More than somewhat, yes. Oh
1: man, tremendous influence for me and um just uh listening to him and he used to talk about all the time he's like everybody should spend at least an hour a day daydreaming and i always took that to heart because i kind of got it it was just like yeah you just kind of think i like to take a walk and think and so when i would do that i would often come up with stories like oh like what if this happened like for my first book um called carry on it was mainly it's very violent but it was done hopefully not gratuitously but i did it more in the sense of i just wanted to see an apocalyptic monster story through the monster's perspective i that was where it started really it was just like what do the monsters think in the walking dead before they get an arrow in the head maybe they're <laughs> thinking about something maybe they're just animals looking for food maybe they're not evil at all like that was curious to me well oh, um, I, I saw the funniest two two
0: two panel uh, cartoon that i have to share with you one of them oh, was,
1: please do. okay imagine
0: a zombie of a lawyer who's being haunted by his own ghost. Come on, Phil. We were a lawyer. We're better than this.
1: <laughs> I'd love to see that. Yes, please. Why not
0: combine the two?
1: Exactly. <laughs> what
0: about all of the ghosts of all George Romero's walking around dead people? I mean, mm-hmm. aren't they upset about it?
1: Yeah. they're, Or they're just like, why am I eating my cousin? I liked him. No, no, run, run, Joyce, run. Yeah, like, come on, we got along. Or then someone's just like, that's my ex, I'm eating them. Eh, okay, I'm good with that.
0: Well, just... I asked this question in particular because in, in both of the books that I read, I read one of your older ones, The Spirit of Laughter. Okay. And your newest patriarch, I'm sorry, your your newest song about the patriarchy called Wedlock.
1: That could be a good subtitle, maybe. Uh,
0: yes. <laughs> and it felt like in both of them, they were. In the older one, you had a boy lacking initiative that doesn't quite fit in anywhere. Mm-hmm. And in the girl one, you kind of a little bit more developed. You had a woman of initiative, but mm-hmm. still didn't quite fit in anywhere. Mm-hmm. Do you sometimes, is that a projection at all? Or is that just a, an, a tabula rasa to put in your situation that you've dreamt up? Your what if? Well,
1: how much would I love to be just like, no, it's just put into my characters. But yep, it's an absolute projection. I might as well cop to it. Uh <laughs> But I don't think I do it consciously. I don't, um, because to continue on the uh, earlier question, I find, especially those two books you mentioned, my last two, Spirit of Laughter and Wedlock, they were definitely more character-driven. I find that as I'm continuing and growing as a storyteller, I do like focusing more on characters and seeing them develop and stuff like that. And so I think the projection comes in because I simply find people, I find individuals just more interesting. And I've always found the type of person that thinks for themselves or goes against the status quo to just be, there's just so much more options on where that character can go, especially if they're your main protagonist that like, if you want to like, do I want to follow the journey of somebody whose path is going to be utterly predictable from the first sentence? Or do I want to follow the journey of somebody who kind of paves their own way? And I think the concept of projection comes in because um, I've spent a lot of my life living that way or tried to with many obstacles and so many <laughs> mistakes along the way. But that notion of just, yeah, like I don't, I've always prided it on where people ask me, like, where do you see yourself in five years? But I don't have the slightest clue. No idea. You want to be an eccentric author
0: living on a boat moored in a beautiful island paradise? Isn't it painfully cliche, but at
1: the same no, time- No, no, it's
0: not. I... It's beautiful. <laughs>
1: But I did pack an old car and drove south until the language changed. So I cannot really claim that I'm against it. So <laughs> I, was,
0: I was almost saying it's not quite the motorcycle di- diaries, but uh, how, how I many of us stuff? you know, Shay was a little bit too, you know, if that had been a, uh, a how should we say it, a Toyota or a Japanese built car, because let's say there's no Ford or Chevy that could have ever done that.
1: No, well, that's why I went in a Toyota Camry. Smart. This is the old ones built like a tank. Smart. I, I have a Prius and that puppy never dies. It's been- yeah. But it's funny you mentioned the Motorcycle Diaries. Um, I read that book uh, maybe a year or two before um, I went to Mexico. I actually read it in one day. I only had one day. I was in a hostel in Peru and somebody was like, hey, have you heard of this? I actually never heard of it. It was in my early 20s. Didn't know. And like, yeah, you should read this, but I need to leave in the morning. I'm like, okay, I'll read it now. So I just read it overnight before I ventured out. And uh, it definitely hit me, just the the initial, because when he, it's so interesting reading that book, but knowing he wrote it with no idea what he would become. He didn't know he'd become Che Rivera as we know it. He was just a young guy who wanted to explore. And that always resonated with me. And it still does. Um, stories, even stories like Shantaram or any of those stories about people that just kind of had these journeys where you know they had no clue where they'd end up but they wanted to embark on them i've always been fascinated by that so that's probably why i always go back to it
0: see i i liked that and in a way you did something with the boy in the spirit of laughter that was interesting because to a certain extent you we as the reader never really get to know them it's not about his inward journey. It's all that we know is he's kind of a nihilist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? If you mm-hmm. don't tell me why, I don't care. It seemed to be <laughs> his, his thing. Mm-hmm. But only as fellow students, through his stories, and we learn about the faculty through their interaction, you tell the stories of absolutely everybody else. And I, I wondered if the boy was a metaphor for the writer.
1: Uh, not directly. Um, it, I don't, it wasn't something I consciously did. I mean, if that comes across, I, I always find it really, really interesting when I hear perspectives of things I've written that I never thought of from other people. I It's one of the most flattering, but also it's so fascinating because I hear what you're saying. I'm like, yeah, that, that makes sense. Maybe it was subconsciously. Um, but I do remember the the key I wanted from that was he was the type who just kept to himself. He just wanted to get through school and then embark on bigger, better things in his life. Mm. And he didn't really he wasn't he was more indifferent than he was malicious. It's not he didn't hate everybody, he just didn't care. And um so when he was tasked with the assignment and that he had to he had to get to know them, he had no choice. And I've always liked that idea that he, um he was more reluctant. He didn't want to, but then as he got almost sucked into these stories he's being told. He just felt compelled to act and to continue. And I always found that to be an interesting idea that I I never liked the idea of the eager hero. I I don't buy it. It's corny to me. Um, I find most of the times, most people who do heroic or even good things, a lot of time it's reluctant, not because they're bad people, but because they might be scared. Um, they don't know if it's worth the risk they they don't want to get involved but then they just can't help themselves and uh, that fascinates me
0: yeah I think it changed his whole character because Mm. in the beginning I mean I'm sorry I didn't didn't really like the little shit for the whole first thing but oh I don't blame you (laughs) but but as it goes on it was it was that he actually engaged with people and I thought Mm. that was an interesting theme to say as you engage he color i mean and and the painting became anything more people went from being just these faceless things he interacts with to being real humans to him Mm -hmm. and it was hard for him because he wasn't ready for it so Mm -hmm. and in the end of it i I like your appreciation that there's nothing that self-important people hate more than being made to look ridiculous
1: of course yeah it's you cannot take them down until you can first take them down yeah and like how they view themselves and stuff like that. i've always I've I'm always not, kind of believed that
0: I'm not sure if it was your George Carlin that talked about punching down in comedy instead. you know, yeah, you know, that the people who like talk about the different groups and like, well, let's make fun of women. Let's make fun of, you know, mm-hmm. anything. It's the. Yeah, that's punching down instead of the the women comedians that I enjoy, are the ones that, you know, I'm willing to mock myself and say, I did this, boy, was I yeah. an idiot, and make you laugh with somebody rather than at somebody.
1: I agree. I, I think self-deprecation to me is far funnier, just yeah. bottom line. But I also think punching up is far more, I I just think it's more compelling. Like, punch up, go go at the higher, go at them, because no one else is. Like, there's something very... Almost cathartic about bullying a bully. I think I don't know if it's fully healthy to do that, but I don't care. I just think. But I agree with you. Punching down and you're going to pick on people or mock people that are already mocked and 99.9 percent of the time mocked without justification and mocked just simply because it's easy. It's lazy. It's cowardly to do that. And in the end, if you're in the world of comedy, it's not funny. And if you're the and if you're in the world of dr- drama, fiction, which whatever have you, I just think it's lazy. It's not interesting. Like, oh, we're gonna have this person from this other country going through struggles, and ha-ha, let's make them look worse. I, I don't, I just find it lame. <laughs> All right, let's move on to wedlock.
0: Yep. I I got a feeling, you know, that when I saw that you had lived in Mexico City, I got a very sort of futuristic mexico city girl from the hills so i Mm. I, am i crazy on that one or was that very much the came from a cute small town high in the mountains where everything was beautiful went downtown and uh, let's face it in every large city there's a whole lot of parts that just aren't that pretty
1: of course no 100 percent. there are some ugly parts in every city
0: (laughs) (laughs) um mm -hmm, sorry and and there are a lot of shocks to her system about ugliness. I mean, she starts, she's coming to the city. She's going to the school. She's going to the university. She's going to, I mean, I get the feeling she had some dreams there.
1: She did. Um, I. She wasn't from the mountains. Um, it was these towns I've seen throughout Mexico and in, in different places in Latin America as well, mainly Mexico, just these highway towns. There would be these little towns you would go through the highways because in Mexico, getting around, it's far easier to get around by buses and not the stereotypical ones you see on every movie. The ones with the chickens and all that. That's ridiculous. I've honestly never been in a bus like that in a decade. And Mm. I've been all around that country. Their buses are better than the ones I take here in Toronto, to be honest. And um, they're cheap and they take you throughout the country. Everything goes by hours, never distance. You're never like, oh, 200 kilometers. Nope. It's how far is Oaxaca? Five hours. So you get on these buses and when you're taking these journeys, which the scenery and everything, because Mexico is so diverse, you go through mountain, jungle sometimes, beach on the ocean, coast, everything. But one thing that was always consistent was these little highway towns where you'd see a collection of restaurants, you'd see some homes behind them and there was always just a sense that they were like oasises but not in a glorious manner and i always would look at these towns that the highways would always cut in half and you would, and then you would pass through it in maybe 10 20 seconds and then it would be gone and just wondering like if people live here but they're not connected to anything and so that was where she was from the main character she was just from from one of those towns right and
0: giving away a little bit mm-hmm. of I, there's questions that I had for myself of what kind of a crappy self-worth does it take for a girl to let her marry her and put off her schooling after knowing her for a week and right. I kept thinking that is a society-wide lack of evaluation for her mind and her education and what she can contribute to the society.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of it, was well, like a lot of that character, well, obviously, and you've read it, so there's obviously parts that aren't real, and thank God they're not real, but yes. uh, <laughs> there's um, a lot of the traits that I, that was in the character of Elena, I've seen, I've met, I would speak to a lot of women that have just been in bad relationships, relationships that really diminish their sense of value, self-worth, just relationships that were on the surface looked great. But underneath, you could tell it was just stripping them. Like, it was just, it was really corrosive. Like, it's one thing to say toxic, but I found these types of, of relationships to be just corrosive, but very quietly and silently. You couldn't see it. Yeah. And then they would tell me about these, these relationships, and it had a lot to do with uh, culture. Uh, around the world, not just Mexico. Not just them. Like, um... <laughs> no, absolutely not. I've, I've a lot of it too. Is influenced by uh, friends that I have here in Toronto and a lot of places. Just that notion of this—you meet this guy, and you know he just seems to provide everything, and like you're in a very vulnerable place, and he obviously senses that, and just takes you over. And so that it just—I've seen it, so I wanted to portray it.
0: And I got to say, I liked the title. So I want to have a question. Did the book come first or did the title come first?
1: That title was actually a gift to me. I was, when I first wrote this book, this book has a long history. I first started it when I first moved to Mexico, actually 12 years ago. I wrote the very first draft, which wasn't that good. But the idea never really changed of the main, you know, the hidden part that I know you know. And that stayed the same, but it kept growing over the years. I would put it aside and then I would go back to it, rewrite it, then put it aside and just keep going for that. But the title, um, it was originally some, I don't even remember the original title to be honest, but a friend of mine, his name was Taylor and uh, he was visiting Mexico. And I told him, I'm looking for a title. He's like, how about wedlock? I'm like, that's perfect. <laughs> so yeah. it just, he gave me that title. Yep. So that title was a gift from a uh, friend Taylor. Mm-hmm.
0: It is I gotta say, even Midwestern America, I know gals that married because they're mothers. And, and and if anybody doesn't understand the importance of your mother in your life, let me tell you how she's ruled it, no matter whether you like her or not. <laughs> mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. that were brought up thinking it's like, well, you have to get married. You have to have somebody taking care of you. You know, you mm-hmm. have you have this I had a friend who's a type one diabetic, so she's like, Jeannie, I have to be married. You know, what if I have a and I tried to say to her, what if you get married and in two months he gets hit by a bus? That's my favorite. Mm-hmm. What if they get hit by a bus? Because that, the sudden shocking change of you will still be alone. Yeah. So why not build a community of, of friends and and around you and assume that eventually maybe I'll probably be in, in some kind of communal home where <laughs> you're yeah. never actually going to be alone. What is this illusion that we've created in so many places that you must have a partner? You must have somebody to take care of you.
1: Well, I think it's been established for generations. <laughs> I mean, it goes back yeah. hundreds of years, and it just goes back to that idea that I think, and to take it from where the story's located, Latin America and stuff like that, I mean, it goes back so far to like when the Spanish came and the conquest and everything like that. It was imported in a sense. And then you it just kept growing, that idea that, yeah, without a man taking care of you, you can't make it and and you see it and as much as it's patriarchal but it's also passed down for mothers and grandmothers and it's it's just i couldn't imagine oh we are are no one here is going
0: to say anything that women have not participated fully in their own subjugation over the years
1: of course and um like i can't imagine it and i try to express it but that idea of just being a girl and you're getting it from both sides your mother your father your brothers your sisters just almost everyone telling you you need this like almost like you can't make it on your own or without this and like that sucks that because so many women can and they could probably do it so much better than they ever thought they could but (laughs) it's always so safer to play it where you just kind of go with this because you can see the status quo you can see it so you can be like well okay there's precedence but to go off on your own in certain especially in certain cultures around the world or just environments definitely class plays a huge part it's easy to, to go off on your own if you're rich yeah but um all of these factors play in and it, i i could only imagine how intimidating it must be it was intimidating for me to go off on my own and see you know i didn't i didn't go to college i didn't want to i didn't like it i didn't want to do what everyone around me was doing and i was terrified i still am and so to add in like being a woman and almost that that gender requirement, so to speak, is just that must be a huge weight. And so I never judge women, girls, whomever that, you know, that weight just proves too heavy. I think it's irresponsible to judge them, especially without understanding why and how much pressure that must be to empathize with it. And that's what I tried to do with the main character. I always tried to empathize with her and also empathize with Diego, with the man, too.
0: I think because. there's empathy for both in this, and I really liked that I'm
1: not a spoiler, but mm-hmm.
0: she does find agency.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. It, it, it's just is sort of the, as she stops just kind of being buried within her life and gets a little bit of perspective, a few breaths of distance, as it were, to really look at it and decide, you know, what mm-hmm. she wants and how she wants, what she wants for herself.
1: Mm-hmm. I think that's important. And for him, for Diego, uh, for me, it was important that he's not malicious. He's not. He he really loves her. It's It's real. It's just corrupted. It's yeah. just corrosive and toxic and all that. But he doesn't hate her. He's not a misogynist in the way people, like the way it would be defined. He doesn't hate women. He's not he just, a conscious
0: misogynist.
1: Yes. Exactly. Yeah, I would. Yeah, I think that's a better way of putting it. Um, yeah. But he's also just reacting to his environment, to what he's seen. He's like, I just want to keep her safe. That's his mission, and in a way, he really thinks he's doing it.
0: And we all, I feel for. It's important to remember as we as we rise up and try to fight down issues of the patriarchy to say, if you wrote if if this story was from Diego's point of view, he would be the hero. And, mm-hmm.
1: yeah. and
0: he, is, he is doing all that he has been taught is mm-hmm. good and important and by the very definition of love of his class and of his gender. And that's interesting to remember too.
1: Mm-hmm. And that was, that, was, that was very important to me. It could have been so easy to paint him as just a mustache twirling villain or just an evil man like the husband in sleeping with the enemy or something right. like that. You know what I mean? That's easy to do. But oh,
0: it it did have a boxing Helena flavor, right? Like, I'm not going to lie. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> and uh but I I wanted cuz I've known guys like that too. And um like they're not monsters in a way. Like they're they're just human beings and he's just he's just trying to interpret what he sees in a way that he thinks is right. He doesn't have much guidance clearly. Yeah. And um obviously this is not a man that's had much in the way of strong female influence. And so, I mean, that's like, I was raised by a single mom. I mean, for me, I, that's all I had sometimes to my detriment (laughs) where uh, like, so I, I kind of got that perspective growing up too. And I've, I've known so many strong women in my life that would really tell me what they thought. So it gave me a lot of perspective. And on the other side too, I would listen to these types of guys. I would listen to them. It's so easy to just judge and be just like, you're awful. Goodbye. You're whatever. But I would listen to them, like, why do you think you need to do this? And they would give reasons that while I don't agree and didn't agree with them, I get why they believed it. And in a way, I I just don't like the idea that to try to understand something gets misinterpreted as condoning it, as um, almost like agreeing with it. And I don't know. I just like to understand things. Even if I don't agree or hate it, I still want to understand it because then at least I can... Explore it, and I always tried to do that with my work. It it sounds like that's
0: some. Uh, it, would that be your advice for young would be writers? Then, absolutely.
1: You um, they. I, you always hear, be a great reader, and I agree with that hundred percent. If you want to be a great writer, you must read, and you must read like you like a bodybuilder exercises hundred percent. But I think you should also be a good listener and not just listen to people in an echo chamber who agree with you don't do that listen to people that you don't agree with as long as they're not aggressive and they're just like insulting or hateful listen to them like listen to people with views that you find repugnant even if they're willing to have a a a mature conversation about it that's a wealth of knowledge because there's so many people who think this way you can't just dismiss them i don't agree with them so they're bad and i won't Well, then you'll never understand them. It's almost Uh, like if this mentality is your enemy, so to speak, like the patriarchy and misogyny and all of these things that people hate. And for good reason. Well, you need to understand it. (laughs) If you really want to do something about it, you Uh, empathize with it and understand that uh, you're not that superior to it. None of us are. Like when you hear how people think this way, Anybody could have easily made that turn to that based on experiences, traumas. We don't know. So I always try to listen as much as I can. And it can be challenging too. It's not easy. But well,
0: it's like looking at it, uh, philosophy and view of the world as architecture. You know, if you don't know where the flying buttresses are, how are you going to blow them up?
1: Exactly. You, right? Exactly. Yeah. You got to understand the foundations, you got to understand how this was built. Like um, a recent thing to me that is very interesting, um, particularly being in Toronto and San Francisco, I'm sure you can relate. Like when you're in places that are incredibly diverse, multicultural, which I love. Wealth of knowledge. I oh love it. And um, a big thing that I always wanted to learn and study, you know, colonialism and such. But I found that it was it's becoming increasingly harder to have a discussion about it versus just colonialism. It's evil. OK, cool. And it is. I agree. But understand it understand what was happening at the time understand why they did it understand the psychology behind almost empathize with it but understanding that empathy does not mean agreeing it does not mean
0: sympathy it just means no not at
1: all you're just putting yourself in their shoes and seeing it from their perspective it does not mean you condone it it does not mean you you would do no not at all and i always try to stress that and for for young writers and storytellers I think it's a good mentality to have that empathize with even the most vile and empathize equally with the most noble empathize with them all understand where they're coming from. And that's how you can create characters that are flawed, that have plenty of nuance and those interesting things that really great stories possess, I think.
0: I think you're absolutely correct on that. Mm-hmm. And and we will put links to Jonathan's site and books that were mentioned on this podcast on our own website, which is www.ridersdrinkingcoffee.com. Jonathan, thank you so much for visiting with me today. This was
1: fun. Uh, thank you very much, Jeannie. I had a great time.
0: So everybody, you absolutely have to go out and try Wedlock. Um, check out some of his other books out there. You will see the links on our webpage. And uh, best of wishes with all your future writing thank you very much and uh, hopefully maybe in the future i can return well look forward to it all right take care you too you've been listening to writers drinking coffee a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts our main web support magic is brought to you by deirdre schween and our sound engineer and backup web spiders are david welsh and john schmidt our intro music is pretty made milk and your cow and our exit music is breakfast with the morning person both by michael langberg You can hear more from Michael Engberg on ManyHatsMusic.com. Our podcast sponsors are Jackal Designs, The Bean Scenes, and Arm Street in Ukraine. And hey, thanks for listening.